The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for February 3rd, 2021. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you in a damp Oakland, California. Morning run had a little bit of a uh, drizzle to it today. Feel like there's a lot of people getting stuff out now. You know, we are we are past the point of ceremony. We are past the point of reverence. We are now moving in to the actual nitty gritty of what politics is. And with one gigantic glaring look back still to come in the impeachment. Otherwise, we are pretty fixed ahead we have a another covid bill that i got some questions on the strategy of because i don't really get what is happening on the republican side i i I don't really understand what they're doing we'll talk about that in a second we've got a full autopsy from one of Donald Trump 2020's pollsters that gives us some numbers to back up some of the stuff that we've already known. But we're going to go through that autopsy. We are also going to have a fun chat with Ronald Hansen, the national political reporter for the Arizona Republic, to ask a simple question. What the hell is happening with the Arizona GOP? They are censuring some of the most famous members of their party, including their sitting governor. They're in a feud with the McCains. We get all those answers a little bit later. Quick breaking news before we go any further, however. Andrew Yang, mayoral candidate in New York City, has tested positive for COVID-19. He uh, had been out and about in New York City. I'm not sure whether or not that's a positive or a negative thing for him. Because on one hand, so many people in New York have gotten COVID that if he rolls with it and just goes back to work, that might be a a good thing. And if you're going to get it, you'd, you'd rather get it now than closer to when the primary is for, for that mayoral candidacy. You know, you don't want to be like David Perdue and sit out your your home stretch because you are suspected to have COVID. Did he ever prove that he had COVID? I'm Googling it right now. They never found out. No one ever found out if David Perdue actually had COVID. That man was not able to campaign for his own Senate seat because he was quarantining for COVID and we never found out whether he had it or not. I'm just saying he had it. I mean, sources say, sources close to me say that I believe David Perdue had COVID. I mean, come on. How do we not know this? This was literally the biggest story on the planet a month ago. And then, of course, it wasn't the biggest story on the planet like 24 hours after the results came in. But still... I want, I don't know. I'm interested. We got to figure this out. Anyway, that's the past. But first. We have just had a very productive, cordial two-hour meeting with the president and the vice president and some of their key aides to discuss the next steps on the COVID relief package. 
I got a question. What the hell are these Republicans doing? These 10 Republicans. What the hell are they doing? What's going on, man? What, what, what's, what, what's the plan? What's the end game, Spence? What, what are you, what's happening? Let me catch you all up on this if you haven't been following it. The Democrats have put forward a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. That will include $1,400 checks, which they're going to graft on to the $600 checks that went out as part of the last coronavirus relief package signed by President Trump. And they're going to say that it's $2,000 checks. It's also a gigantic amount of money for states and cities, along with various other sundry items. Republicans anytime past last March or April have been loath to do a package that gigantic. And even though elements of the Republican party like Josh Howley, before he was known for everything that happened on January 6th, have been in favor of larger direct payments. Remember, I mean, this is how fast things go. Josh Howley And Bernie Sanders were on the same side of that issue, trying to get $2,000 checks in the last coronavirus relief package that was finally put together around Christmas time. So now we've got the new version, and this time the Democrats are in charge. $1.9 trillion. The Republicans want it to be a bipartisan effort. And so they go to the White House... With 10, 10 Republicans, this is important because 50 Democrats plus 10 Republicans equals passage in the Senate. The package that they bring is around 800 billion, which even my public school Florida education knows is less than 1.9 trillion. In fact, it's not even half. My big question with the Republican strategy is, aside from just we're spending less, what's the point of your plan? Why is it different? In a lot of ways, I kind of got the Josh Howley strategy more because you did a beefier direct payment. So if if, if, if this plan was, all right, we're going to do Full out $2,000 checks, but it's going to come at the cost of some of that state and local aid. Then I would get it. You would be putting forth something that would, you know, you, you would have an argument for the American public. Would you like more money directly or do you believe that your state house and your city hall need it more than you do? That may or may not even be a winning position. But not only do they just bring a smaller bill that's not going to be adopted by Biden or Schumer or Pelosi, they then come out and give this glowing, like this this glowing media availability about how gracious Joe Biden is and how amazing it is to exchange our views. And of course, we didn't get a deal. But I just want to point out that Joe Biden's first meeting was with Republicans. It just seems kind of crazy. Like, do you I don't think that they're going to vote yes on this one point nine trillion dollar coronavirus package or else they could have just said that they were going to do that. I mean, maybe they think they can tease it down a little bit, but it just felt very, very, very chummy. And you might forgive me for thinking that it just sort of feels like they're going to let reconciliation happen and then hope the press and the public credit them, these 10 Republicans, as the guys that didn't vote for it 
but still kind of liked it. Which seems to be an odd win condition. Now, reconciliation. I said that word. Let me explain it for folks who don't understand it. Reconciliation is a senatorial budget maneuver which allows you to bypass the filibuster, meaning you can pass things with a simple majority if you say that it is necessary to the budget. Now, this requires a few things to happen, and one of them happened on Monday. That is Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi filing identical budgets in the House and Senate so they can be reconciled on a simple majority. Now, this is something that is a trickier path to walk than some might think. Because if you're going to pass this on 50-50 lines, then you need 50 votes. If you lose one person, then you're toast. And Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi got good news on Tuesday when the most likely person to defect from the team, Joe Manchin, said that he indeed would vote for the budget. And so, here we are. The Republicans that want to work on a bipartisan thing have brought a super weak sauce counterproposal and then seemed very happy just to discuss it with Joe Biden. Schumer is moving forward. Pelosi is moving forward. Manchin has fallen into line. Dare I say it, dear listeners, dare I say it, something that I have not said in a very long time. But it looks like the Democrats have their bleep together more than the Republicans do. They are a mess right now. Those 10 that went to the White House are kind of freelancing. They were sort of the like floating semi-conscience of the, the, the never Trump wing of the party that still wound up siding with Trump on stuff that also benefited their constituents like Supreme Court nominations and such. But they're not particularly tied to the Republican leadership, although they might as well be because Cocaine Mitch has very much stuck his neck out now for Liz Cheney in the House. So we are seeing a fairly stark ye old versus yeehaw Republican civil war right now. This will almost certainly get inflamed as the impeachment trial comes around in the next week. But that'll be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see the Democrats' discipline on trying to muscle through this impeachment trial as fast as they can. Because if they spend more time on it, if they get sucked in, if Trump's lawyers make this more of a circus about Dominion voting machines, then they're, they're, they're just going to kind of lose their momentum here. The momentum is about this COVID relief. People want money. People want to see a thing done. They look to be on that track now. But we'll see if they can keep their eye on the ball. One of the best parts of uh, fallen presidential campaigns is the postmortems, the autopsies. Let's find out how this sucker died. And uh, we have one for Trump 2020. 
and it was made inside the building. Trump's chief pollster, Tony Fabrizio. He wrote a 27-page report. It's a PowerPoint. It was distributed to top Trump 2020 brass at the end of last year. It has now found its way into the grubby hands of Politico, which posted it on the internet, which is where I got my hands on it. It's an interesting breakdown because it takes states that were key to the campaign that they won in 2016 and judges what happened then versus what happened now with the specific breakdown between the states that they won in 2016 that they held, Florida, Texas, Ohio, North Carolina, with the states that flipped, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Blah, blah, blah. Georgia. It confirms a lot of stuff that we knew. A lot of stuff that we were even saying at the time. But but it's interesting in, 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 in a couple ways. First things first. Top line observations from, from my own eyes after reading it. Number one, confirmation. He lost in the suburbs. He didn't lose in the cities. He lost in the suburbs. He lost because white men with a college degree broke against him. He still did bad with women, but he did bad with women in 2016. He did worse with white men. He lost white men. Now let's break that down a little bit further. He lost independence. And more specifically, he lost people that didn't vote in 2016 that were now voting in 2020. In 2016, he won independence and he won voters that didn't vote in 2012, but were voting in 2016. So new people to the process were not in love. And we know the animating issue why. We're going to get to that in a second. First, let's talk about some of the trends that we were following throughout the election and part of it was the identity politics. As we approach Super Bowl weekend, I'm flashing back, flashing back. I'm at the Beachwood Lounge in Des Moines, Iowa, and I'm watching the Super Bowl. The Iowa caucus was 48 hours away. My God, I I was in hog heaven. I I, got to tell you, like even thinking about it, it's such a sweet memory. It makes me sick to my stomach because I love football. I love the Super Bowl. And also in the middle, the, the, the commercials were political commercials. So I kind of got to do my job at the same time. Oh, it was so fun. Donald Trump bought two commercials. Both of them made sure to mention black and Hispanic voters. One of them was specifically targeted toward black voters with criminal justice reform. I'm free to hug my family. I'm free to start over. This is the greatest day of my life. My heart is just bursting with gratitude. I want to thank President Donald John Trump. The second ad he purchased was more of a general ad about the economy. And even there, he wanted to highlight black and Hispanic unemployment. Unemployment for African-Americans, it fell to a new low. Unemployment for Hispanics hit an all-time record low. And ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. We further saw that Trump repeatedly uh, accorded the African-American and Hispanic votes throughout the campaign, even after COVID hit, specifically during the convention, when there were more black faces during that convention than I have ever seen at an RNC before. This was something that they wanted to get out front and center. You might also remember that there was 
a dust up over the Goya brand <laughs> during the campaign. And then also in the 11th hour, this absolute banger of a song that Trump released to gin up the Hispanic vote. So, how did it work out? Well, black vote for Trump was flat. Although, that might mask a little bit considering there was a lot of first-time voters. I th- This poll breakdown does not spell it out exactly how many of those were first-time black voters. Uh, so maybe flat, uh, which Trump was above average for, for Republican candidates with black voters in 2016, maybe keeping it flat was actually low-key a win, but still, scoreboard to scoreboard, he did not improve his black vote at all. Okay, technically he was up 1% in the states that flipped. He was flat in the states that held. Hispanics, on the other hand, double-digit gain. A double-digit gain from 2016 to 2020 in the states that flipped 10, uh, 10 points up. In the states that they held... It was 12 points up. So even in the, in you know, for everybody that's like, oh, it's the Cubans in Florida, it's the Cubans in Florida. Yeah, they, they gave an extra two points for the states that held, but we're talking about the states that flipped. We're talking about Pennsylvania. We're talking about Georgia. We're talking about Wisconsin and, and, and Michigan. In those states, Hispanics also cottoned to Donald Trump's message. Either were able to stem the loss from independence and white men in the suburbs. Like the story with white men is just brutal. He lost 12% of, of the white men in the states that flipped. He lost 6% of white men in the states that he held. White women was was consistent, minus three. Uh, from 2016 to 2020 in both flipped and held. But white men in the suburbs, that's what it was. That is that is the tale of the tape. Now, why? Why? Why would that happen? And guys, the answer's plain as day. He bet wrong on COVID. If he would have owned COVID, he would have won re-election and I I don't think it would have been close. He gave this election away based on his handling of COVID-19. And and let's let's lay out specifically issues that in the states that were both flipped and held, voters had a more favorable view of than Trump's position. People in both flipped and held states were for mask mandates. Most people in both the flipped and held states had a positive view of Dr. Fauci. Most people in both the flipped and held states, when asked the question, would you rather damage the economy and stop the spread of COVID or help the economy but allow COVID to spread, said they would damage the economy? These are all issues that Trump bet wrong on. He bet wrong on masks far too uh, far into the contest. He had this back and forth love-hate relationship with Dr. Fauci where he was was complaining about how Fauci has high approval ratings, but I don't have high approval ratings. If he would have just stood by and smiled while Dr. Fauci talked, that could have totally been different. And quite honestly, he just didn't seem like he had control over the virus. He didn't manage the stuff that he could have had strengths on with the vaccine. And he was too erratic. This scared voters. So let's 
imagine a world where COVID doesn't happen. God, what a beautiful thought. Why do I think that it wouldn't have been close between Trump and Biden? Because even after all of it, even after all of it, in states that Trump won in 2016 but flipped in 2020, he still had an advantage over Biden in the economy on election day, November 3rd, 2020. But with that same group, he was minus nine on COVID in the states that cost him re-election. COVID was the number one priority to voters at 42%. The economy was the next highest, but it's a steep drop-off at 28%. He had his strength in the wrong position, and he serially screwed up in terms of misaligning his values with the voters who needed to go into a booth and press his button on a predetermined date on COVID. Case closed. Have you heard the news? It's no longer just gossip, Politico, writing about the possibility that AOC will primary Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. If you want to hear my thoughts on that, you gotta go ahead and become a $3 patron at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Those folks already got that episode on Monday. It's part of two episodes that come out each and every week that you can only get exclusively at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Head on over there right now. Thank you guys for everything. Another month in the books, and you are keeping independent political analysis alive. Speaking of which, One of my favorite sayings on this show and something that people have come back to me and said that they've repeated in other contexts is all power is future power. What I mean by that is is in politics, it is not what have you done for me, but what have you done for me lately? What can you do for me tomorrow? What can you do for me in four years, in 10 years, in 20 years? The most powerful person in the world is the person with the most bright, powerful future in front of them. You know, somebody like AOC. And now you can get the All Powers Future Power t-shirt and phone cases and laptop uh, cases and and, and all sorts of stuff, masks at politicsmerch.com. Brand new design. It is up there for you. All power is future power. Politicsmerch.com. I love it. It's got kind of a a He-Man sort of design to it. I think it looks rad. Go check it out. All power is future power. Politicsmerch.com. Our guest today is the national politics reporter for the Arizona Republic, here to talk all about what in the hot ham water is happening with the Arizona GOP. Let's welcome to the show, Ron Hansen. Well, thanks for having me, Justin. All right. This is great because uh, uh, Arizona has been a fascinating state not only historically, but really in the last uh, uh, several years. Uh, and and I, I, I don't know whether or not I want to start with the history. Or I want to start with what's going on now. Let, let's start with what's going on now. Uh, Ron, what the hell's happening with the Republican Party in Arizona? It, it seems like not only is it, look, state parties often are disorganized. And, and many times they fight and there's a power struggle. But it seems like there is an open and an ongoing civil war in Arizona. 
Yeah, there's definitely unrest among the people who care a lot about the party. Uh, the 2020 election did not go well. That's coming off the 2018 elections that didn't go well. And uh, the leadership of the party um, was just up for, uh, you know, a new election cycle. They chose their leaders. And, and this one created, uh, I think, more than most uh, places, a lot of division about what is the future, what is the direction, who should speak for the party, and, and really what is it that they fundamentally believe in. And it has been chaotic and acrimonious, and that's how they deal with Republicans. Yeah. And, you know, obviously their, their warfare with Democrats and, and uh, others is, is just continuing to snowball. So let's let's go to the reason why I, I I was I was looking for people to talk about this and I I found you, and that was after leadership elections for the state GOP, there was then a censuring not only of figures that are divisive to the more MAGA uh, uh, populist aligned elements that had seized control, including uh, the wife of the late John McCain but also the sitting Republican governor of the state of Arizona. What, how long was that coming? What is the end game here? Uh, uh, is, is uh, how long does the governor have on his term limits? I guess I, I, I really all, all of that just bundles up into a why. Yeah. So this has been bubbling up for some time. Uh, you're you're doing pretty well. I, I uh, am impressed by your knowledge of what's happening with this state and, and its politics. Um, look, the short story is the Arizona Republican Party, like probably all parties in all states, is sort of, you know, led by the activists, the people who feel most strongly about where they want their party to go at any given moment, especially in an off year. Uh, you know, this is like the only people who are, are participating are the junkies. Yeah. Well, you know, that can take Democrats to the left. But in Arizona with Republicans right now, it is taking them very far to the right. They have had complaints longstanding against John McCain going back to the 1980s. And they're not especially fond of Cindy McCain either. Uh, she has had causes over the years that were seen as liberal or certainly not, you know, solidly conservative. And uh, among the grassroots Republicans here, it's just been, you know, she has been on their list for some time. She went the extra mile in the fall of endorsing Joe Biden. This state was the closest state in the country in terms of the number of votes that separated uh, the winner from the loser in the presidential. So, that's an especially bitter pill. When you layer on top of that, Donald Trump's uh, sort of Arizona fetish over the years um, and his his obsession with John McCain that continued even after his death, you can see why Cindy McCain stayed in, in their yeah. uh, thoughts. When you look at Governor Doug Ducey, uh, this is a second term governor who is uh, term limited after this term. He's halfway through his second term now. Um, you know, this is somebody who won by on the order of like 14 percentage points when he was reelected uh, in 2018 on a night that was not an especially good night for Republicans in Arizona, by the way. No. Uh, so this is somebody who did really well with Republican voters and with uh, independents here um, last year at the annual meeting for the state Republican Party. He was booed into silence uh, at one point, and that was over his his support for red flag laws. Those are the laws yeah. where they talk about, you know, wanting to try and temporarily take away gun rights from people who are deemed a threat to themselves or others. That heresy got him booed into silence at the annual party meeting. So when you get to this year's party meeting, uh, you know, this governor, after having turned down a phone call from Donald Trump as he was certifying the state's election, uh, the optics could not have been more awful for the governor among that really hardcore grassroots conservative audience. Um, in December, we had a, an epic night of Twitter wars with uh, some of the folks, the governor's chief of staff, his former chief of staff, 
and a lot of folks who are uh, in more conservative camps these days just really savaging each other over the election and just the, the, the tone and direction of, of the GOP in Arizona. So things didn't go well in November for them, and they've really been sort of tearing each other apart ever since. All right. I, I want to pause here and let's 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 go swing back in time a little bit, because I do want to give people context to the Arizona uh, GOP. And this is something that I spent a lot of time researching with a history series I did that was all about the 1964 election. And so therefore is about Barry Goldwater. The Arizona GOP is something that has been kind of a vanguard uh, uh, in, in, in the national history of the party. And at the time was really the guiding light of of conservatism and I think is often sort of misrepresented and lumped into the kind of segregationist South rise that sort of happened around the same time. But when you look at it, this was a very different ideological uh, uh, Western kind of philosophy that in many ways sort of became the blueprint for what we now sort of think of as the kind of country club bedrock, you know, business Republican aesthetic. Uh, where does where do we go from from kind of like that era through the 60s and 70s into the John McCain, Jeff Flake era? Because it feels like that's what some of these populist elements of, 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 of the MAGA right are really reacting to. Like, like, like it seems pent up specifically, maybe even more Flake than than than, than McCain, but. But that like the, the Republican Party had drifted way too far into the country club side. Yeah, I mean, the history of the party in Arizona is interesting. And I think that if you go back to, say, the Goldwater era, uh, I think that the state's um, ancestral uh, libertarian tendencies, there's a big streak of libertarianism that, that has run through this state. Uh, you know, you see some of those uh, those issues coming up. And um, when you get to the 80s, there was, uh, you know, uh, a movement among some conservatives. It was all about the religious right. And uh, John McCain found himself, uh, as did Barry Goldwater at the end of his career, um, sort of uh, jousting with folks on you know social issues and moral issues uh, on some fronts. Uh, these days, it's sort of morphed into this, you know, you know, pan uh, American nativist nativist sort of uh, sentiment that is all about America first, whatever that means on any particular issue. It's often sort of crystallized with the immigration slash border security issue that a lot of people use as a, you know, sort of test for your conservative credentials you know how hard of a line are you willing to draw there and folks like john mccain for example and jeff flake were much more accommodating much more nuanced in their views on sort of that core issue in some ways along with others that has just stoked anger against them again among the grassroots and i think that um you know, they had a lot of election, elective success here, um, but, you know, certainly by the end of Jeff Flake's term in the Senate, it was clear he could not win a Republican primary. That's why he quit the race and ended his his career. Um, it, it's also clear that John McCain had, you know, shortly after uh, the thumbs down vote in uh, in 2018 regarding health care had really sort of crossed a lot of conservative voters for, you know, what they just were unwilling to accept. I think in McCain's case, he always had a, a much broader coalition of people who were willing to uh, support him anyway. A lot of independents really, uh, you know, loved him. They they bought into his brand of maverick conservatism and such, uh, his, his patriotism. Uh, it, it was the kind of thing that he could probably individually get by, but almost nobody else can. And the party has, in the Trump era, sort of lurched even farther to the right on uh, party discipline, and it has just created this um, really um, difficult uh, environment for Republicans to, you know, have any kind of uh, 
break in what is you know seen as party orthodoxy and we've seen in our house delegation we've seen it in the senate results that we saw with mark mcsally losing twice here that um conservatives are forced farther and farther to the right and that is costing them at the ballot box in a state that is increasingly purple and and that is the key that seems to be driving this particular fight with the republicans is that both sides seem to be pointing at the other one and saying, you can't win. Your candidates don't win. And we joked a lot about on this podcast that you can't spell McSally without two L's because she has been a gift in terms of minting Democratic senators over the last few years. But from your perspective, she I mean, I, well, here, let, let me ask you, but my, my perspective with, with McSally was she was not necessarily a great candidate and she was not bold on either I'm going to be the super purple uh, a Republican or I'm going to be the super MAGA Republican. And therefore, she was just not only a mushy middle once, but a mushy middle twice. And that and that resulted to two losses from from somebody who watched this and covered this. Uh, is, is there any more nuance to that? I think that's a pretty good starting point. Um you know, Martha McSally just really kind of never seemed completely comfortable uh, with any wing of the Republican Party, whatever you want to call it. You know, there was, again, this McCain constituency that went on for you know more than 30 years. And, and he had uh, a poll on Arizona voters that she could not lay claim to. She had a McCain-like biography in some ways, being first- American woman to fly in combat and, you know, uh, really, you know, had some military chops, but it wasn't McCain's story. She also turned out to be supportive of President Trump throughout his presidency, but she only did so after, you know, sort of keeping him at arm's length throughout 2016 when she was in the House and in a very, very competitive House district. She was wary of him. And I think stylistically, it wasn't a good match uh, in the beginning. Um, and so I think that to a lot of uh, Trump conservatives in Arizona, they viewed her as someone who was insufficiently loyal to President Trump. She couldn't win over the McCain folks who looked at her as having been you know, overly accommodating of President Trump. And you know, she just didn't appeal to the people who were in the McCain camp to begin with. Um, so with a, a foot, you know, sort of in both camps, but also in neither, she really struggled to find her, her message and her political brand. You know, one thing that stood out to me was in, um, in her 2018 loss, Martha McSally underperformed Doug Ducey, uh, in the governor's race in every County in Arizona. Um, there wasn't one place and very much including Pima County. That's where Tucson is. Um, that she could not do better than Doug Ducey anywhere on the ballot. It was just a sign that she was fractional of whatever the best performing Republican was. And if you look at 2020, uh, I think she outperformed uh, Donald Trump in one county. We have 15 of them here. Yeah. Uh, she had one county where she outperformed Donald Trump by 200 votes, and it was a county that she lost anyway. So it just didn't even... So. Her political brand just seemed especially weak compared to the people at the top of the ticket, whether it was the establishment Republican in Doug Ducey or, you know, sort of the uh, contemporary Trump Republican Party in 2020. She just couldn't get enough of the support that um, that those two folks were able to pull in to at least have them competitive in Trump's case and victorious in Ducey's. Why was it just fait accompli that she got that Senate seat and therefore was going to run again in 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 2020? Like what what who who makes that decision? Was that a Ducey decision? Is that a party decision? How does that work? Yeah, so it was Governor Ducey's decision. Uh John McCain died in in 2018. Uh when that seat um was first filled by the governor um by state law, it had to be someone of the same party that held the seat originally. So in this case, it was a Republican. He initially appointed John Kyle, the former senator uh, from Arizona. And, you know, he held that post until the end of the year. And that meant that we started the 2019 
uh, Congress that was just getting started anyway with, as it turns out, the person who had just lost the November 2018 election, uh, Martha McSally. And the governor's taken heat for that decision. Um, but I would say this in, in his defense, it had to be somebody. And if you go through the list, who else would he have chosen? There were a couple of names of people who uh, were bandied about. Um, one was the eventual secretary of the Air Force. Uh, she didn't take it. Um, there were some others like his chief of staff at the time uh, who also went into private um, into, into the private sector to you know uh, pursue his career. Uh, the governor, unlike Joe Manchin, had no interest in being in the Senate himself. Uh, his eyes are toward perhaps higher office in, in Washington. And, you know, when you look at our other House members at the time, you have people like Paul Gohar, not uh, known for being especially uh, appealing to independent voters. You have Andy nor Biggs, nor, nor his own is, family, as we found out in that uh, political ad. <laughs> right, right. You, you have uh, Andy Biggs, who is now the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, ideologically very similar to Paul Gosar. And uh, you had, um, uh, you know, just no, uh, you had David Schweikert, who was facing ethics investigations. Um, you know, the, the reality is that it had to be somebody. And Martha McSally was somebody who had won in a very, very competitive House district. I mean, her House district, uh, when she first won, she won by like 167 votes. You know, it was the closest house race in the country when she won it the first time. And she lost two years earlier by like a thousand votes. So it was an extremely competitive district. And so there was at least an argument that McSally knew how to you know, compete in in tough environments like that. She was always a good fundraiser. And she more ideologically uh, lined up with Doug Ducey um, than with, you know, some of the other folks who are further to the right and, and more strident in their rhetoric and such. So, OK, you know, it's fair criticism to say that McSally did not run well as a candidate. I would say that there were some unforced errors, including, for example, the Manu Raju uh, standoff. Yeah, you know, went national partisan, and partisan. Viral. Yeah, that was that was her calling him a partisan hack, right? Right. It, but again, like if you look at the GOP bench here, who else should have gotten that pick? It, you know, it's I'm hard pressed even now to think who would have been a better candidate. I mean, I guess that's that's the thing. Is it ultimately hindsight is twenty twenty, and and the argument from outside of the the storm would be. Anyone but the person who literally just lost doing it, uh, and, and especially when you have Trump at the top of the ticket, when, when you understand that, like, all right, the voters that are going to be coming out are going to be populist MAGA. You're going to get that wave. So maybe somebody that would be more attractive to those voters would give you a more competitive, uh, uh, competitive shot. Because as as it turned out, McSally was kind of. Uh, uh, too warm or too cold for kind of everybody on on the right, and ultimately Kelly sort of waltzed in. Yeah, it, it was um, it was a tough thing. You know, Martha was a very good fundraiser. She ran against somebody who was a phenomenal fundraiser in Mark Kelly, and the same thing for Kirsten Cinema, who was uh, you know pretty uh, prolific in fundraising in 2018. Um, both of those Democratic opponents were very disciplined. Uh, they had um, the kind of records that that appealed, especially in this moment, to the centrist kind of voters, the independent voters in Arizona that really sort of are reshaping the state's political uh, attitudes more broadly. McSally was lurching to the right at the moment that the state was you know, sort of stepping away from that more broadly. Um, you know, she did. I, she was very, very well liked by Mitch McConnell. I think mostly because, you know, she was good at taking orders. Yeah. She uh, was very pliant. Uh, you know, whatever uh, Senator McConnell asked, she was um, uh, eager to please, it seemed. And she was, it, you know, Mitch McConnell had been advocating for her, uh, her to be in the Senate in 2017 when Jeff Flake first pulled the plug. Uh, and there was a competitive primary 
Um, you know, he so she was sort of indebted to him. She warmed up to Donald Trump as best she could do. Um, and meanwhile, she was trying to be respectful of of John McCain's legacy here and make nice with the McCain family. But in the end, as you've picked up, I mean, she just couldn't, you know, she just couldn't seal the deal with with any of those camps to truly be able to own any part of that constituency. It just left her short in all corners. Yeah, it just felt like she was never like, I think if you want to make peace, you you can be the MAGA person that's going to make peace or you can be the purple person that inherits the McCain family that is trying to make peace with with the MAGA side. But you got to kind of pick one lane and then define the bridge on how to build it or else no one's going to trust anything you say. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's just it was a, a tough thing for McSally. She clearly didn't navigate it well enough. And there's considerable bitterness in the Republican Party more broadly now over those two losses. Uh, and I think there are some folks who attach fault to Governor Ducey for having put McSally in that position in the first place. There is certainly blame to her for being, you know, not Trumpy enough uh, all the way through. Um, there is a sense, you know, the, the person who currently heads the state Republican Party, Kelly Ward, uh, she ran for the U.S. Senate twice as well, um, but she lost in the Republican primary on both times. First to uh, John McCain in 2016. It was a really ugly primary mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, she just kind of made some statements that continually, you know, she was stepping in the bucket uh, on that one. And then in 2018, Martha McSally beat Kelly Ward uh, for the nomination. And so uh, there's just been this acrimony all the way around, there's been regrets. And, you know, we had a campaign event in Arizona in October where uh, President Trump came to the state and with Martha McSally, you know, on stage with him, he expressed the regret that Kelly Ward had not been uh, in the Senate. And it was sort of vague enough that you're not sure, is he referring to 2016 when she didn't beat out John McCain or is he, yeah. is he referring to 2018? Uh, with uh, Kelly or with Martha McSally. So it, it just created a tenseness and again, I think deepened the sense, especially after the fact that Martha McSally uh, was not who should have been carrying the GOP banner here in Arizona. All right. So let's look forward. Uh, Arizona, the, 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 the land of Goldwater and McCain now with two democratic senators in Washington uh, one that seems fairly popular in, in Kirsten Cinema, one that has just gotten in right now in Mark Kelly, but Kelly's seat, which was McCain's seat, right, is is now back up within the next two years. Yeah. So McCain was uh, last elected in 2016 to a six year term. OK. And so then he died in 2018 late enough in the calendar that there was no election to be no special election to fill that seat. There was the appointment that ran until the next general election, yeah. which was 2020, as it turns out. So Martha McSally filled that middle part of that term. Now Mark Kelly is finishing the last part of that McCain term from 2016, which means he's back on the ballot again in 2022 yeah. for that 2016 term that McCain had begun. So Mark Kelly's back on the ballot in 22. And then uh, Kirsten Cinema, who won in 2018, will be up in, in 2024. And Ducey is 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 out, right? He's term limited. So so there will be a governor's race in, in one of those elections, I presume. Yeah. In uh, 2022, Arizona will hold its next gubernatorial election. Uh, Ducey is in the second term, uh, second half of his second term. And it's kind of remarkable. We've had a, a string of governors who ended up like Janet Napolitano going to the Obama administration or others who left office under different uh, circumstances that uh, it looks like Governor Ducey is well positioned now, especially with Democrats in charge in Washington to finish out a full eight year term. Uh, I, I should note that he is presently the uh, head of the Republican Governors Association. So gotcha. uh, Ducey has standing nationally 
that he does not seem to have in Arizona in some conservative corners at the moment. So as always, you're never a prophet in your own land. <laughs> and and by the way, uh, uh, kids ask your parents, uh, back in the day, before senators and reality show hosts were the best way to get into the White House, being governors of populous states used to be the top resume uh, uh, that you would that you would want. Who knows if that if that land will ever come back? But I imagine Doug Ducey has eyes on that. I want to ask you more about that in a second. But let's talk about those Senate races. What are the names that we should be looking for? On the Republican side, now that Kelly Ward is in control of the GOP, I presume we are going to get more populist, MAGA, you know, uh, Trump sidey uh, challenger to Mark Kelly. But but who are the names that we should watch? Well, you know, that's sort of the um, the real battle that's that's playing out here is what what direction should the Republican Party take, and in choosing Kelly Ward for heading the party for the next two years, it seems to, you know, keep her name out of that for a third run. So that's, that's one development, but it also suggests that the party um, activists are very much still in the Trump camp. They want to see someone in that orbit um, make a run. We had, uh, you know, some folks uh, who have been, you know, making noise about running for Senate previously, uh, Andy Biggs, for example, is is one name. He's in he's the chair of the Freedom Caucus in the House. Um, but it, it's unclear, especially in the wake of the January 6th Capitol riot, uh, whether Andy Biggs is going to be able to you know, make a statewide race um, uh, at this point. It, it seems, you know, like he would find that to be very hard uh, to navigate. There are people who have suggested other names uh Daniel McCarthy ran in the primary in 2020, uh, and he is a very, very conservative uh, businessman who, um, you know, was just able to peel off enough support in the Republican primary against McSally to suggest that she still had problems with the grassroots, but he wasn't able to really sort of catch fire with it. There are others. Uh, Kirk Adams, for example, is the former chief of staff to Governor Ducey uh, in his first term. And this is somebody who is um, very much uh, in the, uh, the business establishment sort of traditional conservative mode, uh, who in more normal times might be considered a very uh, reasonable possibility. But, you know, at this point, um, it's just not clear that that he would be able to win a Republican primary. So I, I think that the GOP overall is still sort of um, searching for someone who is able to win a primary in the present environment, able to fundraise and be able to you know compete with uh, somebody who is a, again an extremely prolific uh, fundraiser in 2020 in Mark Kelly and able to, you know, still find enough appeal to independent voters in Arizona to, to get across that last mile of the race. And I, I don't think that we have a clear sense at the moment of somebody who checks all those boxes. Where does the like demographics of voter registration tilt in Arizona. Obviously, the voting results over the last few elections, the big ticket elections have turned more uh, uh, to favor the Democrats, although very slightly. But in an off year election, and let's maybe assume that this off year election will be kind of less like 2018, which was a gigantic circus, uh, uh, which is rare for off year elections. They tend to be a little bit quieter. Uh is there a built-in Republican advantage in terms of voter registration? Yeah, I mean, so Arizona historically has been a, a red state, and it's um, uh, even more true, I think, in the off-year elections. That's when we elect governors and other statewide offices here. So um, it's always been a, a pretty GOP-friendly state under normal circumstances. The state has been drifting for some time now more to the middle. We have um, basically equal numbers of independent voters and Republican voters. Democrats are a little bit less than either of those two groups. Mm. And so, you know, neither party can really win without attracting at least 
you know, a significant slice of independence in Arizona. So that's been the game is that for Republicans, they have a conservative leaning independent base that they've historically appealed to. That appeal has sort of eroded in recent cycles, especially in the Trump era. I think it's it's something that the independents turned against them uh, for a number of reasons. But what that has meant is that, you know, when you get to Election Day now, I think Republicans know that to win statewide, they're going to have to be able to appeal to a wider audience that historically, you know, you would think not just in Arizona, but it it should be a good election cycle for Republicans in 22. Right. With Democrats holding everything in Washington, you would think that Republicans, all things equal, would probably stand to do well. I think that, you know, that's probably not as true as it used to be. I think the polarization, the party uh, affiliation is just the determining factor. And we just keep you know going at it as a nation. And, and that's also true in Arizona, where we see this uh, growing purple uh, tendency, a stronger Democratic Party that mostly has done well because they also chose very safe nominees who didn't have to endure bitter primaries. And I think that for Republicans heading into 22, again, Mark Kelly will not face a primary in 2022. And as they try and look at, you know, beating him, they first have to find somebody who will be able to survive their own primary and then turn and appeal to independents, at least in strong enough numbers to be able to make the case. Uh, And a reminder to listeners that in a 50-50 Senate, the most likely Democratic seat to flip based on the the winning percentage is Mark Kelly's seat in Arizona. So there will be a lot of focus on that. Uh, All right, real quick, and I'll get you out of here on this. Doug Ducey, is he going to run for president? And what do you think his strengths and weaknesses are if he goes national? I think that uh, Governor Ducey has no interest in running for the Senate. Um, his, his heart, his, you know, commitment has always been sort of on the executive branch of government. Uh, I think that there are folks who have, uh, you know, thought of him as presidential within his own administration that they have, you know, just, they've always tried to cast him as the grown up in the room and and the person who is the leader who does the C speak, right? Like the C suite uh, executive uh, part of conservative politics and such. They've always seen him as a guy who should have a future in Washington. He is the head of the Republican governors association. He has taken a very traditional um, uh, approach to his political career. And it's been pretty good. He's had a good run here in Arizona, but it, you know, again, I think that if he had to run right now, it would be a different thing because of the voter moods having shifted here in Arizona for sure. But I think that the Trumpism uh, cycle that that really holds sway over the the majority of Republicans these days seems to mean that uh, Doug Ducey may have to wait his turn. He may be uh, seen as more of a vice presidential uh, possibility. Uh, maybe somebody who could do a, a cabinet position, whether it's treasury or uh, something along those lines that, again, speaks to his credibility as someone who is responsible and uh, sufficiently conservative. He's a tax cutting proponent, for example. He's not been especially uh, interested in things like Second Amendment or social issues uh, to any great extent. Well, I mean, who even knows where we're going to be by the time that uh, we, we, we begin to seriously start looking at, at, at what that slate will be for the Republican primary. But I think a lot of it will turn on whether or not the Republicans can succeed in 2022, because if if they don't flip the Senate or then they, and they don't flip the House, then, you know, uh, there will be a great thirst for winning. If there's one thing that drives political opinions, uh, in my opinion, it is winning. Trump won in very surprising fashion. That led a lot of people to believe that that was the pathway. We'll see whether or not it continues to be in Arizona. Ron Hansen, national political reporter for the Arizona Republic. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Let's keep the love train rolling. Uh, you guys really responded with Jack Allison and Jody Avrigan. If you enjoyed this conversation with Ronald Hansen, 
of the Arizona Republic, then please head on over to his Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N on Twitter and let him know that you loved him on this program. If you don't want to try and spell it out, you can always follow us on Twitter at px3tweets and you'll find it in the show description there. Of course, you can find me on Twitch at px3live.com. You can get our newsletter at the px3newsletter.com. I've been having a blast with that lately, by the way. Our free political newsletter, man, it is, uh, I feel like it's, it, it's in a special place. I like the writing I've been doing there. You can support us in many different ways, of course. Uh, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. But you can also hit me with the PayPal. One-time financial donation to the cause. PayPal.me slash PayJury, P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. And my Venmo is Justin-Young-20. You can hit me with physical checks or anything else at P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. But it is only on TakePoliticsSeriously.com that you can be a part of our Titanic $10 tier. I love you, TNT. Dr. G, the Jen, Kathy Mack, Headphones, Neil. Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo. Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle-Aged Mike, But What Happened to Tex? Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Justin Egan, Dotcom Junkie, Diana Sunny Smiles, Tempest Fugit, Jason with uh, Magnolia, Delta Credit Card Processing, D-Laser, Hashtagus, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda Janelle, Jenny Colby, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Jim, D. Really, Frozen Summers, and Andrew. If you want to be a part of their crew, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That wraps it up for us today. We got some great stuff coming up for you on Friday. Tom Merritt joins us to help us sort through some of the tech and stock market craziness that just befell us, along with anything else that we'd like to talk. And, uh, oh, you want to know what? Breaking news literally as I record this. Senator Elizabeth Warren is going to be serving on the Finance Committee, according to to Chuck Schumer. All right. Till next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying uh, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only show that dares talk about how Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.